2 Timothy, uh, chapter 4, verses 9 through 22, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version translation. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with the world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring, <clears throat> and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remains at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubola sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let's pray once again. Lord God, we pray that it would be your Holy Spirit who guides us and leads us through this passage. We pray for much grace uh, to understand, and then much grace as well uh, to make these words true, active, living in our own lives. Help us not to be those who simply hear the word, but those who actually do and live it. Jesus wanted us to be salt of the earth and light of the world, and we pray that that would be so. Enable us to have true light and truth in our lives so we can be all that you want us to be. For the sake of Christ, in his name, amen. Um, I want to begin with a song that um, I learned when I was... Um, 13, so that was 1965. <clears throat> if you need to add that all up, I'm 68. <clears throat> <clears throat> Country song, Roy Clark. I I'm only 13 years old, but this song actually gripped me uh, as something that was singing something incredibly significant. But like a lot of country songs about 54% by the latest tally. They, they all deal with something really sad and tragic, right? <laughs> Only if you play them backwards do you get a happy message out of it. song goes this way. Yesterday when I was young, the taste of life was sweet as rain upon my tongue. I teased at life as if it were a foolish game. The way the evening breeze may tease a candle flame. The thousand dreams I dreamed, the splendid things I planned, I always built, alas, 
on weak and shifting sand. I lived by night and shunned the naked light of day, and only now I see how the years ran away. Yesterday when I was young, so many drinking songs waiting to be sung, so many wayward pleasures lay in store for me, and so much pain my dazzled eyes refused to see. I ran so fast that time and youth at last ran out. I never stopped to think what life was all about, and every conversation I can now recall concerned itself with me or nothing else at all. Yesterday, the moon was blue, and every crazy day brought something new to do. I used my magic age as if it were a wand and never saw the waste and emptiness beyond. The game of love I played with arrogance and pride and every flame I lit too quickly, quickly died. The friends I made all seem somehow to drift away and only I am left on stage to end the play. There are so many songs in me that won't be sung. I feel the bitter tears upon my tongue. The time has come for me to pay for yesterday when I was young. I'm going to come back to that song uh, at the end of the message. But that song captures something incredibly significant. I'm 13 years old. The song impresses me at 13 years of age. And it had a lot to say to me then, as I hope it would have a lot to say to my grandnephew, Damien, and niece, Ariana, and dear children of the church, Savannah and Ryan, who are young. Because there's an incredibly significant message and that song that Roy Clark sang that also applies to the significance of today in terms of your public baptism. Because that public baptism, as you have professed your faith, as you come before the church in a few moments, that public profession says, I intend to be a Christian, and I intend to live the Christian life and I intend to understand that the world uh, can be played in a very foolish, foolish way. And I desire to commit myself to something that will not lead me at the end of my life to such empty, empty regrets. You see, the song is speaking about life and death. This passage at the end of Second Timothy is speaking about life and death. Because Paul knows he's slated to die. Uh, Paul is basically conveying to Timothy his last written words. Now, there are a lot of people who know they're going to die. Uh, a lot of people, I mean, all of us know we're going to die, theoretically. And some have the opportunity to know that they're going to die in a few months because of a tragic illness from which there's no recovery. And some people don't know that 10 minutes later, they won't be with us anymore. 
there is nothing more important for you to think about and to contemplate and understand and be absolutely sure about than death. But we live in a culture, as was described 40-some years ago by some eminent author, we are a culture that fears death. Fears death. Fears that which is inevitable. And our culture does everything it can to hide that and to not to face that. And most people don't prepare for it. Most people don't prepare for it at all. And yet it's an inevitability, inevitability that's going to grip all of us. And that's why this, this song, Yesterday When I Was Young, is so solemnly significant. But it's also why the words of the Apostle Paul are so triumphantly applicable to us. Because if we were to look at these words and try to gather all these last thoughts that the Apostle Paul is now intending to say to Timothy, we could wrap it up in sort of one major thought. And uh, as, I, as I wrote this earlier this week, as it, it's going to come up on the screen, it, it really sounds like an English essay kind of thing. Right, so I'm just going to read it. Uh, the assurance of our faithful perseverance and our final deliverance from this present evil age lies in the gospel truth that Christ stands with his people to strengthen them and to rescue them from every evil that is formed against their lives. Now, that's absolutely true. It summarizes what Paul is saying to Timothy, but it really sounds like an English major wrote it, as opposed to the way I really want to say it, especially because I want to say it to Savannah, I want to say it to Ryan, I want to say it to Ariana, I want to say it to Damien, and I want to say it to everyone who's young here who can really understand that. You have a life to live. Will you live that life well? Or will you, at the end of your life, like the Roy Clark song, he didn't write it, but he sang it, the best rendition of it yet, will you have all of these regrets? Will you look back and, and realize that you made really sad choices along the way? Or will you be able to say, like the Apostle Paul is able to say at the end of his life, that the course was set, Christ was with him, he persevered faithfully, and he's got the promise that as he dies, God is going to deliver him, not from earthly death, but God himself, Christ himself, is going to come for him and bring him into his heavenly kingdom. Now, your baptism today is a statement to all of us that you have set your heart, your life, your course on Christ and to follow Christ and to pursue Christ so that you would not live at the end of your life find all of these regrets that they write sad songs about. Now, to look at this passage, I, I've got five points, and I'll move through them quickly. But essentially, the five points are like this. It's about the background to this passage. There's some important things I want to say about that. There's the, the, the big intention of this passage from God's perspective to us. There's benefits that we can see for us as Christians in this passage. There are some specific, one specific lesson I want us to hold on to and learn and then up there, um, I actually, I changed this from what went out. Some things were emailed out to you. I had experiences to be treasured, but as I got to the end of it, I thought, no, I really want to focus the E there on 
an example to be followed, the example of the Apostle Paul. So let's begin with the first thing, B, background, background. Now, when I took journalism in high school, we learned what it is to do news stories. Now, you won't find this in the Bakersfield, Californian anymore or the LA Times or any place. Uh, they stopped writing journalism 30 years ago because every lead paragraph in true journalism begins this way. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? Those questions. The lead paragraph is to tell you who, what, when, where, why, and how so that you know something after you've read the first paragraph. Try that with the Californian. Try that with the Times. Try that with the Washington Post. You'll see it just doesn't work anymore. But it's still such a valid approach to understanding the background for something. So you ask yourself who. We're talking about the Apostle Paul, uh, the man who persecuted the church. He started out his adult career as an opponent of the name of Christ and an opponent of Christians. He persecuted the church. He had people put to death under the authority of the Jewish council. He was the most ardent, zealous opponent of the church as the church began. But he meets Christ, the resurrected Christ. His life thoroughly changes because God had appointed him to be now not the persecutor of the church, but the one who's going to be the primary preacher and church planter and evangelist. And he does. He outdoes all the other apostles in terms of what God is able to accomplish through him. Um, do you know that he wrote half of the New Testament? Do you know that out of the 50 significant ideas that you can trace in Western culture, more than 90% of them come out of the New Testament? People don't realize that because we have canceled the culture of Christianity. And out of those 90 ideas, the Apostle Paul is the one who's articulated the most clearly of anyone with respect to Christians. Uh, those who aren't prejudiced against Christianity, even though they're not Christians, will say the most significant intellect in all of Western history after Jesus was the Apostle Paul. He wrote half the New Testament. But now we find that he's in prison in Rome. This is his second time that he's in prison. So we're finding out where is he. So who is he? What is going on? He's waiting his death sentence. He's been tried once by the Roman tribunal. And the case was undecided, meaning he couldn't present enough evidence to defend himself. That is to say, he couldn't get exonerated. So now there's going to be a second trial some months later, and that trial won't go well for him, because if you don't have enough evidence the first time you're brought before the tribunal, you don't really get a second chance. And what Paul says in the passage we looked at, that those who could have been there to stand for him, to speak on him, they all deserted him. Why? Because what's going on in the Roman Empire at this time? This is under Nero. Nero instituted the first persecution of Christians. Thousands and thousands are going to die for the Christian faith. Paul is going to be one of them. Peter was one of them. Some other apostles, many eminent Christians, are going to die. When is this going to happen? Following spring. Our best historical sources say this happened in the spring of A.D. 67. So now it's the fall. Winter hasn't yet come. So it's the fall of A.D. 66. And Paul is saying to Timothy, 
come see me. Come see me before this happens. I want you to come before winter. Winter travel is awful in the Roman Empire. Not today. Mediterranean can handle it today. You know, modern ships and planes. Back then, it was treacherous to do any sea voyage during the winter months. So come before winter. Why? Why does Paul want Timothy to come? Well, he wants him to come for one big reason. Some people will think, well, he's going to die, so he wants his spiritual son, the man he's closest to, to be there with him to give him comfort. No. Part of it, no. He wants Timothy there because he wants Timothy there when he's executed, when he's beheaded. Because he has some morbid sense of things? No. He wants Timothy to know this. I have given you this message throughout the last 20 years of your life. I want you to know that this message is so powerful that I am not afraid to face death. And I want you to know that I'm going to die for Christ with no regrets at all. And I want you to be there. Because, Timothy, that's the man I want you to be. A man who runs the race well. The man who's willing to die for Christ. Timothy. Baptized Timothy. Timothy. You who identified with Christ, even as I, Paul, your spiritual father, identified with Christ. Willing to live and willing to die for that name. How? How was he going to die? Well, because he was a Roman citizen, he didn't have to be crucified. Crucifixion was done against those who were not Roman citizens. He doesn't have to be crucified. Uh, He's going, in fact, uh, wind up uh, being beheaded. They, They took a Roman sword. They put you out there. Off went the head. That's what he was facing. He wanted Timothy to be there, not out of any morbidity, but out of the sense of saying, Timothy, I will finish the course God's given to me. Now, all of that background is so important because of what Paul then says to Timothy and what Paul says to any of us who are baptized Christians in terms of finishing the race well. Then the intention of the passage. So I, the intention of the passage. The big idea of the passage. Well, we've already stated it. The big idea has to do with the fact that Paul wants Timothy to be as he was, to be able to persevere fully, to be able to, 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 well, Paul put his own life this way. If you go back to verses 6 and 7, he says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. He says, I have kept the faith. So he's fought. He has finished. He's kept the faith. That's the big idea. And then Paul says, and in doing so, I do this with a full assurance that, not that I'm going to, quote, die and go to heaven. We often put it that way. But do you know what is more clearly stated by the New Testament? It's not that you die and go to heaven. 
that if you die and you're a believer, Jesus comes back for you. Jesus comes back to you. It's Jesus who then re- receives you unto... It's Jesus who actually brings you to heaven. What an amazing difference. Cancel all of those jokes where we read about people who die, go to heaven, they're standing before the pearly gates, and St. Peter's there to talk to them. <laughs> you see, when you actually appear before the pearly gates, it's not going to be some... I have so many of those dumb jokes, and I promised myself I wouldn't tell you any of them. (laughs) But the truth is, here's what happens at the end. What happens at the end is we die, and then Christ comes back for us. Now, uh, my good friend Mr. Fleming has placed the clock in front of me. (laughs) What does that mean? It's a good thing. That's the big picture. That's the big idea in this passage. If we live with Christ, if we walk with Christ, when we die, Christ will be there with us. Christ will be there. He will be with us now, and he'll be there for us, but he will be there with us when we die, and he is the one who will take us to heaven. Then B again, benefits. What what is the benefit as we look at this passage and all the different kinds of things that we might see here? The benefit really reflects that great idea. Paul talks about how at his first trial, when nobody else was there for him, uh, apparently there were some prominent people who had maybe maybe promised that they were going to come and speak on his behalf. They didn't show up. In chapter 1, verse 15 or so, he says, uh, you know, all of those in Asia, men of repute, most likely, uh, they all deserted me. So all these men who might have been there to give testimony on the Apostle Paul and say, he's not a trouble to the Roman Empire, they didn't show up. But he says, but Christ was with me. Christ stood by me. Christ strengthened me. And at that first hearing, he says, and I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. Now, that's both a metaphor and it's literal. Uh, The metaphor is, I was delivered out of a great danger, but the literalness is, often Christians were fed to the lions in the Colosseum. But then he looks ahead, and he knows it's not going to go well for him at the second hearing because he says, I know that my time for, the time of my departure is soon. He's absolutely assured of that. Maybe God gave him some special knowledge of that, but he knows from the judicial process, he, he just knows he's not going to live much beyond the second time he appears before the Roman tribunal. But then he goes on to say, but here's the benefit. Christ himself will rescue me and bring me into his heavenly kingdom. The benefit of knowing Christ is he's with us now and he will be with us then. And then a lesson, a particular lesson that you might, many lessons out of this passage, but here's a particular lesson. 
Uh, we read about Alexander the coppersmith. We just read through that as we were reading the passage. And Paul says, um, Timothy, uh, watch out for Alexander the coppersmith. He did me great harm. The Lord will reward him according to his deeds. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. How do we understand what Paul is saying? We live in a culture, as many cultures, many times, it's all quid pro quo. You do good to me, I'll do good for you. You do me in, and I will make sure that I get even. We live very much in a culture where people can hardly stand to have anything done to them that they don't have the opportunity to do back to them just as bad or worse. Right? We, 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 look, it's, it's very much a uh, don't you dare do that or I'll do worse to you kind of culture. People live that way. People sometimes thrive on that kind of drama. People sometimes live almost for that kind of, of you know, uh, you victimized me, I'm going to victimize you worse. Step back, folks. Uh, when did that solve issues between Democrats and Republicans? When, when did that ever work out well at schoolgirls, among you girls who hated each other when you were in high school? When did that ever work out well? Right? And, and guys at work and so when has that ever solved anything when somebody stabbed you in the back that you turned around and attempted to do the same thing? When did getting even ever ever work. You do not have in your hands the ability to meet out proper and satisfying justice. You don't. You don't have the ability. It's not in you. You don't have the capacity. It's beyond human ability to make everything level and, and even once again. And people who think they must do that, and they don't do it, and they can't do it, you talk about bitterness, smoldering anger, resentment, uh, it doesn't work. The Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, this man, Alexander the coppersmith, did me great harm. I'm leaving it in God's hands. There is one who is the perfect arbiter of all justice. And that is God himself. And if you understand true justice, you know that nobody escapes. Nobody. Alexander the coppersmith there will be a day of reckoning for him, Timothy. All I want you to do is be aware of what he did. Steer clear of him. Don't want you to fall into his targets because he's, he's a bad dude. He did me great harm, but it's in the Lord's hands. If there's any lesson for life out of this passage, it's really that kind of a lesson. You can't do Justice the way God does justice. 
I know some of us think we're Batman and we want to be vigilantes and we want to go do those kinds of things, right? I mean, I've got buddies here that we've talked about some of the things we ought to do to people. And then we're seized by the Spirit of God to understand the Lord said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And Paul said, uh, Do not overcome evil with evil. Overcome evil with good. Finally, the example. We're down to the Apostle Paul, the example of Paul's life, which is the big story here. He's facing death. He knows it's certain. He is not afraid. When I was in high school, I had an English teacher who once said to us, had to be about my junior year because I can't remember much beyond that going back. It had to be my junior year. She said, um, if you were to die six months from now and know that, that you were going to die six months from now, would you change the way you live right now? And, and my thought was, well, sure. I had all sorts of reasons why I would change the way I was going to live if I, if I was only going to live for six more months. And her response was, if you would change the way you live because you knew you only had six more months to live, if you would change the way you live right now, she said, you're not living the way you should live right now. Now, you know, at, at you know, 16 years of age, I'm thinking... Nah, I got all sorts of things that I would object to, object to, object to. The older I got, the more I began to see that if we're not living today the way we ought to be living every single day, then we're going to wind up with a tremendous, tremendous amount of regrets in our life. And I think that was the larger picture of the message that she was trying to say to us as teenagers. Stupid reaps what stupid does. I don't know who said that, but it's very true, isn't it? So the choices we make now, the way we choose to live now, has all the difference in terms of what's going to happen every other stage of our life. And the Apostle Paul is an example of someone who really got it wrong to start with. Christ got a hold of him. He really began going in the direction that he needed to go. And because of the strength that Christ gave him every single day, he lived that life so that he could say at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. And Savannah, you're getting baptized today. And Ryan, your parents have done you well. 
you love Jesus. My deepest desire for you is that every day you will think about fighting the good fight of the faith, running the race to its conclusion, keeping the faith. And for Ari, Damien, family. (laughs) May your baptism today be not something so new in terms of who you are, but a powerful reminder of what your life is going to be all about. That you will want to run this race with perseverance. You will want to fight the good fight of the faith and you will want to keep the faith all throughout your life. That you would be committed in every way to the Lord Jesus. So, I started with the song, Yesterday When I Was Young. Mickey Mantle Ask Roy Clark in 1995 as he was dying, sing this song at my funeral. Because Mickey Mantle believed that song mirrored his life. An incredibly gifted athlete and an alcoholic while he was playing baseball a most intensely unstable life throughout his life. He could speak of the the flames of love too quickly lit that died. He could think about every conversation that was about him or nothing else at all. He could think about how uh, there were so many songs of drinking to be sung. And he lives his life And he loses almost everyone in his life. Nothing beyond his early baseball career was ever, ever notable as anything good. And he wanted that to be sung at his funeral as a message to those who would come. Don't live like I lived. Disaster, disaster, Disaster. But that's not the whole story. Because in the last year or so of Mickey Mantle's life, Jesus came to him, loved him, saved him, redeemed him. which gave him crystal clarity to see all that I was, I've turned away from now. Baptized, living for Christ when he died. So what what does our baptism mean today? 
as we come to this time. It's a statement. Damien, Ari, Ryan, Savannah. It's a statement before family and church family. It's a statement. I'm identifying with Jesus Christ. And I want to live for him. Let's pray. So God, our Heavenly Father, who has given us Christ, we do pray that we would desire to live for the one who lived and died for us. Faithfully. Faithfully. To the very end. In his name, amen.